0: I'm Ewan Bremner, and you're listening to Reflections, Art, Life and Love, from the National Galleries of Scotland. This is the series where we study the length and breadth of human experience through the eyes of diverse artists. Today, we're looking at depiction of the female form in art. We'll be hearing how some women artists have used their own bodies in their work, from surreal animalistic avatars to models in a wider narrative. We'll hear how some women have been depicted by men in non-traditional ways and we'll hear from an artist whose dedication to the figure took a new slant when she experienced motherhood. We're going to start with a story that saw one artist at odds with the image given to her from birth. Leonora Carrington was one of the longest surviving artists of the Surrealist movement when she died in 2011. Early in her career, though, she was just a young woman trying to find her place in the interwar period of the early 20th century. That's when she became something of a muse to one of the leading artists of the day, Max Ernst, and vice versa. In this relationship, she would find and lose herself as an artist and it would open the door to the painter, writer, poet and political advocate she would become.
1: My name is Joanna Moorhead. I'm a journalist and When I was a a little girl and a teenager, I knew that there'd been this figure in my family's history. I knew it was scandal, it involved scandal, and I knew it was exciting, and I knew it involved love. And I really couldn't find out very much about it. I, by chance, at a party, met the Mexican art historian, and she said to me straight away, I can't believe you don't know more about Leonora, she's the most famous artist we have today in Mexico. She had left our family in 1937, having met Max Ernst, who was much older than her. He was in his 40s. Shortly before that, she'd come out as a debutante. Her parents had very much hoped she would marry somebody ideally aristocratic so that she would take the family into these higher social echelons. They were very wealthy, but they were nouveau riche. So a lot depended on Leonora and her marriage. And instead of that... In 1937, she met Max Ernst and decided that her future lay with him. And, uh, and she went to join him in Paris and became part of the Surrealist group that also included Picasso and Dali and Duchamp and Breton. She was only 20. She described it to me that being an artist was like it was a need she had. She was going to have to unpack experiences in a way that she couldn't have done that if she was still in the midst of the family. She had to get away from it to see the things that were important to her to to unpack. She was always regarded as, by the family, by her parents, as troublesome, as, you know, a difficult child because she couldn't fit in. And so that what that meant in her life was that, for example, she was expelled. She was sent to boarding schools and expelled, and then she went to a finishing school, and I think things didn't go very well there either. And, and she didn't do it because she was being arsey or difficult. You know, she didn't do it to be difficult. She just was being herself.
0: Ernst left his wife, gradually. In Carrington's own words, he taught her everything about art and literature. By her own description, Carrington was captivated by Ernst's vision and knowledge, which must have made a refreshing change after English high society. But what captured Ernst about the young woman? Here's a quote from his son Jimmy, who met her in Paris. When I got to the apartment, I was disappointed not to find him at home, one of the most beautiful women I had ever seen told me in English-accented French that she expected them back in about an hour. She made tea and in the course of conversation told me that she loved Max and that they were living together. Her name was Leonora Carrington and her dark, glowing beauty so affected me that I found it difficult to talk to her coherently. Ernst and Carrington seemed to inspire each other. Art clearly presented an alternative lifestyle for Carrington. The surrealist movement was shocking at the time, but she said in an interview that the actual wild parties were few and far between. Nevertheless, Carrington still managed to show up naked to one of them, bake locks of everybody's hair in an omelette and paint her feet in English mustard for another. Sounds like a postcard from everyone's youth, right? Maybe not.
1: When Leonora entered the group, it was the mature phase of surrealism and actually the war changed everything for surrealism the surrealists moved from europe largely most of them moved to many of them moved to to new york and the us max had had helped her free herself i suppose one might say and as she saw it her education had been what she called diseducation she saw and was part of a group of artists and she saw how you use ideas and experiences and how they create art She said very clearly later on in her life that she never regarded herself as Max Ernst or anybody else's muse. And the way she said it, she was getting on with her own work and her own life.
0: By 1938, the pair moved to Provence. Carrington bought a farmhouse with a vine in a village named Saint-Martin-d'Ardèche. Ernst painted huge reliefs against the walls, which still stand today. It is in her portraits we can glimpse their relationship and the alter egos they created.
2: My name's Kirsty Meehan, I'm Archivist of Modern and Contemporary Art here at the National Galleries of Scotland. We are looking at a portrait of Max Ernst by the artist Leonora Carrington. Uh, This dates from around 1939, we think, and it depicts Max Ernst wearing this long, furry, vibrant red outfit, stripy socks, and he's holding in his hand a lantern in which is imprisoned a small white horse. Uh, there's also another white horse in the background of this icy landscape which surrounds Max Ernst. And this horse in the background is much larger in scale and frozen and arrested in, in space and time. Throughout Carrington's work in both her paintings and in her writings as well, because she wrote quite extensively, this figure of the horse reoccurs re- as a sort of alter ego of hers. One is is frozen behind in the landscape, behind Max Ernst, and the other is held within a lantern carried by him. So there's this idea of the horse representing Leonora Carrington but somehow arrested and, and imprisoned, I think, in this, in this artwork. Obviously it represents an early stage in her work which progresses beyond, I suppose, self-representation in a way but to, into a kind of wider exploration about creativity of women, I think.
0: Ernst and Carrington's farmhouse idol didn't last long. War came again in 1939 and the Nazi Party didn't look kindly on the Surrealists or many modern artists. Soon Ernst was imprisoned in a camp where Carrington was only allowed intermittent visits. This was the end of the bourgeois girl from Lancashire and the beginning of the dark period that would reshape her life.
1: Max Ernst was German and they were in Vichy, France. So he was taken away by the Vichy French and imprisoned as an enemy alien. And then he was released and went back to the house but then he was taken away again. Leonora had a a very serious breakdown just surrounded by the birds and animals that they had and then she had a visitor who was a friend from england another artist and this woman who was called catherine yarrow was very worried about finding leonora in this state and she was in quite a state and she was on her way to spain so she persuaded her to to get in the car and go with her to spain but then she had another breakdown in madrid and at that point the uh, family she was with unfortunately tricked her into being admitted to this place that she called the asylum which was actually a sanatorium on the north coast of of uh, spain it, it was it was a sanatorium for rather well to do people but if that was the upside to it there was a terrible downside and that was that the doctor who ran the clinic and this would have been un, unbeknown to, to my great-aunt and uncle who were paying the bills i'm certain of that that the doctor who was running that clinic was doing experiments into what would later be called electroconvulsive therapies. And she depicts that in, in terrible detail in her own writings how she was kind of tied naked to a bed and, and the terrible treatment she got. In the midst of convulsions, I relived
3: my first injection and felt again the atrocious experience of the original dose of cardiazol, absence of motion, fixation horrible reality.
4: I was then taken to down below in a cataleptic state.
1: Tirelessly, Nanny repeated, what have they done to you? What have they done to you? And wept by my bed, thinking that I was dead. But far from being touched by her sorrow, I was exasperated by it, for I felt at that moment that my parents were still trying to pull me back through her. It must have felt like imprisonment and torture her parents sent the family nanny, who had been very close to Leonora, in a, they sent her in a warship to Spain to see if she could bring Leonora home. That didn't impress Leonora at all, um, because as she used to say to me many years later in her kitchen in Mexico City, why didn't they come themselves? <laughs> She had a very stark choice, I think, in that moment. She could have got on that ship and gone back to England, become somebody's wife, become that woman that they, the family wanted her to become. But the other way, the other path down which she was going to go was a desolate one. She, remember now, she has no lover. He's gone. He, she knows not where. She's got no money. For a woman in her early 20s to make that choice, to just go off on your own with nothing... Having come from everything, I just think it's it an extraordinary tribute to her and really shows the character she was, that she did that. And that is what she did. She managed to get out of that sanatorium to live out who she, who she is. And she's in a hotel, I think it was, in Madrid. And across the room, she sees somebody she knows. And this is a man, he's a Mexican, and he's called Renato Le And she met him in Paris through Picasso. He said that he had the answer, which was that she should marry him and he would get her away from Europe, because he was Mexican, he'd been working at the embassy in Paris, he was on his way back to Mexico, and if she married him as his wife, she would then have the same status as him and be able to leave Europe.
0: Carrington accepted Renata's offer, he escaped her minder, and he escaped to America, where they later parted and the rest of her life began. Carrington would discover her former lover was alive in a dramatic realisation at the harbour in Lisbon. By then, their lives were on a different trajectory, driven by their need to escape Europe and survive. Ernst went to America with Peggy Guggenheim. He married her, and then later Dorothea Tanning. Isn't it interesting that the time Ernst spent with Carrington is almost a footnote in his life, whereas in Carrington's story, her time with Ernst has a sort of quality of life death and rebirth is it just the way we tell it perhaps it is as her contemporary dorothea tanning said in 1990 you may be a woman and you may be an artist but the one is a given and the other is you
1: i think of it as leonora leaving europe with a trunk and packed in this suitcase or trunk are all these experiences, these really complicated experiences and things she's seen and gone through. And really, when you look at Leonora, a young woman in her 20s arriving in New York in 1941, she has gone through experiences that many people live two or three times over or more and nothing like that ever happens to them. You know, there were so many traumas. The trauma of being separated, you know, there must have been a lot of trauma involved in leaving her family the way she did. Her love affair, things that happened in Paris, being in the asylum, of course, is a huge one. Meeting up with her lover again, you know, so many traumatic experiences. And I kind of imagine her leaving Europe with all of those experiences in this trunk. And then I think of her, In Mexico, where she lived out the rest of her long life, unpacking that trunk and taking these different experiences out, seeing them from a new vantage point because now she really is away and she's looking at these experiences and reinterpreting them and she's also layering in things that have happened later in her life.
0: Oscar Wilde wrote that every portrait that is painted with feeling is a portrait of the artist not of the sitter. The sitter is merely the accident, the occasion. Has a picture of a woman made by a man got anything to do with the individual sitter or everything to do with how he sees himself or her in relation to himself? Kirsty Meehan told us about the model and photojournalist Lee Miller and her friend Pablo Picasso. In
2: 1937, when they first met and they first went on holiday to Mougins, Picasso did five portraits of Lee Miller at that time. So obviously he was, as many people were, kind of overwhelmed by her beauty by her her visual beauty but you can see in these later photographs that he trusts her enough to enter his working space his studio and he obviously respects her enough as a photographer to just let her do her work so I think perhaps the relationship changes a little bit over the decades from one where she's primarily a model or a kind of object of beauty to one where perhaps he respects her her own practice a little more so we've got a photo here of Lee Miller on the left having uh, a chat, a sort of playful conversation with Picasso, this is from Mougin when they are on holiday in 1937. Uh, and it's beautiful, you can just see the pleasure on the, both their faces and, and the, the obvious affection written on it. I think she was always a kind of fierce character who knew her own mind. But I think in terms of the images of her, I suspect, you know, she was a photographer herself. She knew what would look good on camera. She knew how to pose. She knew what light would fall well on her face. So I think she really brought that knowledge of photography to her modelling as well. There's actually a kind of lovely story that uh, Tony Penrose, who is Lee Miller's son, often tells, where um, he saw a portrait by Picasso of his mother... Uh, it's the first time he'd seen it and he pointed at it and he must have been sort of three or four years old at this point and just said mama so he recognized Lee Miller's character her you know her essence I suppose in this painting even though perhaps look at it it's quite challenging it's not an easy kind of portrait perhaps it's not an obvious portrait but he obviously saw that kind of central part of his mother as conveyed in this painting by Picasso so it's a lovely story (laughs)
0: Francesca Woodman was an American photographer who was known for her black and white photographs. Many of these feature female bodies and she was in the habit of using her own as a subject, not as an avenue of self-exploration, but because it was available at the time of her work. Like Leonora Carrington, Woodman's work was also transformative and surreal. And although both used their own bodies and images as subjects, their identities remain elusive. Woodman's suicide at the age of 22, left a question as to what this very special photographer might have achieved with more time. We took a walk around the Artist Rooms exhibition at the Scottish National Portrait Gallery to hear more about her work.
4: I'm Lauren Logan, I'm a Curator of Modern and Contemporary Art at the National Galleries of Scotland. This image is called Untitled Providence, Rhode Island from 1975 to 76. It's one of the many images where Woodman uses her own body in the photograph. It also has a little inscription underneath which says, uh, See you Sunday, Bow Wow, Love Spot. And she did incorporate notes, um, phrases in quite a few of the images. I think this one was probably a personal note to her boyfriend. Um, and we can see there's a couple of other examples of that in the art streams collection where she has a sort of personal inscription on the image. She would paste photographs into notebooks, um, often with little inscriptions to family and friends. As with many of Woodman's images, it's not really what you would consider maybe a sort of conventional self-portrait. It's rare to see her face, whereas in this one we actually do see her face, although it's slightly blurred. Um, and she's sort of crouching on top of a mirror and looking back up to the camera. And often her body is obscured in some way. It's almost like a need in her work that she wants to use herself. Often with props, so there are examples where she covers her body with sometimes items of furniture, sometimes things like umbrellas, sometimes she disguised behind bits of wallpaper. She uses all sorts of different devices to explore her body in the space in that way. There are quite a few examples where you see her body blurred it's almost becomes like a sort of ghostly presence in the image in different ways and she used an experiment with sort of long exposure times To she used a small scale in in almost all the images i think it creates more of a sense of intimacy when you're looking at the images they kind of draw you in to look at them because they're smaller
0: Sarah Lucas was one of the young British artists that emerged in Britain in the 1990s, along with the likes of Tracey Emin and Damien Hirst. Her use of her own body and those of other women often incorporates humour to interrogate traditional gender depictions.
4: She often used photographs from tabloid newspapers like the Sunday Sport and cut those out as source material Things like stories about sex scandals or um, sort of sensationalised images of of naked women in in her work to look at gender roles and stereotypes. In the collection we have a group of 12 self-portraits which she made between 1990 and 1998 which sort of play around with the ideas of uh, femininity and with masculinity. The earliest one is called Eating a Banana where she's seen looking at the camera quite knowingly and suggestively with this Mm -hmm. banana and another image is a self-portrait with fried eggs where she's seen a quite a sort of masculine pose with her legs apart staring straight at the camera and almost quite confrontational pose with these two fried eggs placed on her chest so there's also a kind of a sense that she's using um, like visual puns and, and humour in her work as well and challenging sort of representations of, of gender and, and sexuality. And it's interesting that the YBAs and the sort of interest in British art in that period I think is part of a wider interest in British culture in the 90s.
0: Jenny Saville was also one of the first generation of young British artists to graduate in the early 90s. Saville had studied at the Glasgow School of Art before travelling to the United States, where her interest in the physicality of nude women and the oppressed form was sparked. Since then, she has created paintings of the female form on a monumental scale.
3: Even if I start completely abstract, which I do often, just throw loads of paint on a canvas, my instinct, my animal instinct, is to make something of it. I am quintessentially figurative. You know, not to let, just have paint sensation, but to make an image. But I have a deep love of abstract painting. But I haven't wanted to abandon the pursuit of the figure. I've never wanted to make a narrative painting like a story, because filmmaking does that very well. But I wanted something that wasn't just one image, and that was sealed I I think there's an enormous shift in my work, and that came from actually growing a child inside my body. When I say, oh, having children, that isn't specific enough, because it isn't actually having children, it's the fact that I grew flesh inside my body. And I'd spent my whole life trying to paint flesh. And I was painting flesh and growing flesh at the same time, and that was very powerful for me. And then when you give birth, and that's like being in a Francis Bacon painting. It's very profound, and it's you know, and and it was it was the opposite of the sentimental. Oh, it's a cute child sitting in a flower pot. That's not was not my experience at all. So I felt much more related to ancient goddesses, you know, the the power of fertility, and so I sort of tapped into that. And at the same time, I had these two toddlers who were just going crazy on the kitchen floor with paint, you know, sitting there just getting covered in paint you know painting across the surface of the paper this utter freedom and I was like well wait wait I'm the artist here what's happening you know like oh my gosh you know these two babies are beyond anything that I can do and so that gave me I always say my kids gave me back my freedom artistic freedom because um, I then started experimenting an awful lot more and going outside the lines and multiplying the lines and all of these different things. And I I just rode that wave for many years. When you paint the nude, you are taking, you are wearing, you're picking up a very heavy coat, if if you know what I mean. You know, it almost stands for oil painting. It stands for the tradition of Western art is to paint the nude. But then you start to learn how important it is to do that in terms of the way that we see in general, the way women see. And that became a very empowering area to work in. You know, realism, often people think, oh, it's like, if if it's realism, it's the model sitting in front of me and I paint directly from the model. I'm talking about realism in the grander sense of the word for me. It's all our lives, how we receive information, how we understand what reality is.
0: The photographer Robert Mablethorpe created many stylized compositions of men and women in his work. But there was one particular muse that he photographed more than any other. Anne Lydon is the chief curator of photography at the National Galleries of Scotland. She told us more.
5: One of Mapplethorpe's most photographed sitters was Lisa Lyon. He photographed her more than 200 times over a period of six years. She really occupied this sense of a muse for him and it wasn't just that she was his his model his sitter there was definitely an element of them collaborating together that she was a co-creator in in these photographs and maplethorpe i think was drawn to her because she she won a bodybuilding title in 1979 and was known then for her incredible physique which had great you know sort of muscle tone yet she was also seen as being very feminine. She, you know, just, just sort of embodied this combination of, of both male and female that really fascinated Maplethorpe. And I think after his sex pictures of the 1970s, where he had really immersed himself in gay culture and in documenting that and representing that, this was a, a the next step for him in looking at this beautiful woman who in many ways embodied both masculine and feminine traits. They collaborated and produced a book together, Lady, Lisa Lyon, and for a very brief moment early on in their relationship, it was a, an intense sexual relationship that they had, um, so it was a really creative, dynamic partnership uh, that resulted in this tremendous body of work that has a lasting legacy through through the publication.
0: I'm Ewan Bremner, and thanks for listening to Reflections from the National Galleries of Scotland. You can find out more about the artists and artworks featured at nationalgalleries.org. You can check out the work of Francesca Woodman at the Artist Rooms Exhibition, at the Scottish National Portrait Gallery in Edinburgh until October, as well as some of Leonora Carrington's work. And if this show's got you thinking, tell a friend about it, share it on your social media and subscribe to the next. There's a lot more to talk about. I'll be back next time.